how much pain are you willing to tolerate before you're willing to course correct. A California lawyer turned himself into one of the fittest men on the planet. Rich Roll. Globally recognized ultra-endurance athlete. New York Times bestseller. And host of one of the biggest podcasts on the planet. He sat down with 800 of the world's smartest people. Is there one overall takeaway? This theme of transformation. So, my story, I graduated top of my class, the world-ranked swimmer, and then I was working as a lawyer, so on the outside, it looked like I was doing pretty well. Inside, I was dying. My first escape was through drugs and alcohol. My family didn't want anything to do with me. Marriage that ended on the honeymoon. Went to jail, could barely make it up a simple flight of stairs without being winded, and that was a harsh dose of reality. I needed to overhaul my life. I needed to do something that was going to be hard and uncomfortable. You can't be a phoenix if you don't burn in the flames first. We all want to be this idealized version of ourselves, and yet we still don't do it. We are in a culture that prioritizes comfort and luxury and the impatience that we all have. We overestimate what we can accomplish in a year and completely underestimate what we could do in a decade. We don't have to suffer. We don't have to be in pain. It's our emotional lives that hold us back from accessing that potential. So how do people in that situation take that first step in transformation? What worked for me after trying many different things was... Why should you listen to this episode? All in all, this conversation is fundamentally about transformation, how you transform yourself from where you are now to where you want to be. And Rich's life is the personification of human transformation. This guy has been down and out. He suffered with addiction, failure and turmoil that most of us will thankfully never have to endure. But he says in this episode, and he'll prove to you, that pressure, that discomfort can be and should be your privilege. And if you lean into that, if you understand that pressure is your privilege and discomfort is the pathway to all the good things that you want in your life, then and only then can you reach your potential. And one of the things I really got from this conversation is this idea that all of us are much more capable than we believe we are. We have more potential than we allow ourselves to believe. And also, one of the big things Rich will leave you with in this conversation which blew my mind, if I'm honest, is this idea that addiction is on a spectrum. We tend to think of addiction as, as he says, junkies or people that are ingesting or taking drugs. But if you think about it, we're all addicted. We're addicted to distraction, whether that's our phones, whether it's pornography, whether it's food, whether it's alcohol, as is the case in Rich's case, or whether it's our work. How do we alleviate ourselves of that addiction to distraction? That's what you'll find out in this conversation. And most importantly of all, Rich has sat down with 800 of the world's smartest, wisest, and most successful people. And from doing that, he has learnt a lot. This is one of the episodes that you honestly should not miss. Enjoy. Rich. This is a, a broad question, but it's intentionally broad. Who are you and what mission are you on? Coming out of the gate hot. Uh, that's a very difficult question to answer. I would say that I am a spiritual being having a human experience, endeavoring, attempting to learn and grow in a number of ways. I had an experience uh, in my early to mid 40s where I was able to tap into potential 
that I didn't know existed. And I expressed that athletically. And that experience taught me that we're all capable of so much more than we allow ourselves to believe. And it motivated me to go on this journey to grow and expand in other areas of my life because I realized if I had been sitting on this latent potential athletically for so long, there must be other blind spots and I wanted to explore those. And so my mission has been to grow in the public sphere, learn in the public sphere by having these conversations on my show um, and then share that wisdom with other people for the purpose of elevating consciousness and activating positive change in others. You know, you've got millions and millions of people listening to your show all over the world. You've interviewed, I think, almost 800 people, right? Mm-hmm. 750 there, podcast yeah. episodes or something, which is staggering. Um, on an individual level, what is it that you hope to impart or what impact is it you hope to have on the individuals that listen to your show? I want everybody listening or tuning into the show to believe to their core that they are capable of of more than they may realize, that, that there is um, a greater possibility for every single person, regardless of circumstances, and there are tools available for accessing that. Um, I think that's super important because I think it's so easy to passively or reactively live our lives. We're all on some level in a routine, in a rut, and we have blinders on because we're in a certain uh, social environment where there's unstated dictates about what's okay and what's not. And we're all creatures who want to feel a sense of belonging and identity with whatever group that you know we're aligned with. Um, and I think that that comes with very good things of feeling you know wanted and needed, but also negative aspects which create blinders to the greater possibilities that that are available to us. Everybody is conditioned in sure. s- some way or another. Um, and that conditioning starts fairly early. What you're talking about there, at least in how I heard it, is to try and undo some of that conditioning so we can live more aligned to whatever worthy cause is um, right for us. When was the, when did you start being conditioned? And mm. what was that condition? What was the first sort of, con- what's the first context or moment where your conditioning began? The conditioning that led you on the journey that you lived? I went to a high school that was very... Um achievement oriented grades were very important uh academic achievement in my household was paramount uh and it was a situation in which no matter what i did it you didn't quite get the validation that you were seeking so you're always chasing it a little bit more a little bit more um to the point where unbeknownst to me or on an unconscious level like i needed to escape that paradigm and my first escape was was through drugs and alcohol and bullying. Bullying, yeah. What, what Take me into the mind of that young guy that's being bullied. What is he thinking? What is he, is he scared going to school? Is he trying to escape who he is? Is he trying to fit in in certain ways? What is he doing? And, and what is the experience of bullying like for him in detail? Yeah, to take myself back, I think I just, I just wanted to feel like I belonged. And I always felt different than, other than the sense of, not being comfortable in my own skin, like other people had a rule book for life that I lacked. Um, And just not having the social skills or the confidence to be able to make friends or feel like I was part of anything. And then 
eventually you you cite alcohol and drugs as being the the thing that made you feel other than yourself in a good way well initially it made me feel like myself it was like this miracle salve where suddenly all of the unconscious anxiety and sense of difference between myself and others seemed to vanish and that discomfort in my own skin turned into comfort like i suddenly felt like oh maybe this is how everyone else feels all the time i've discovered this thing where now i feel like okay like i can exhale and i can be around other people without feeling anxious about it and i can look somebody in the eye and have a conversation or like flirt with a girl or, or do all these things that seem to come naturally to other people that seemed alien to myself. And I just remember feeling so at home with that and just wanting to feel like that all the time. And it got its claws in me. And that's how that kind of journey begins for many people who've had their version of my experience with alcohol. Addiction addiction comes in many forms and the, the, the role that addiction was playing, the role that alcohol was playing in your life at that stage can also be substituted for other things, right? So some people have it with food or with um, or with work. From sitting there and interviewing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, what have you learned about the nature of really like the role that alcohol was playing for you, but also like the role that maybe for me, like being a workaholic or mm-hmm. for some people eating is playing. What is it doing for us? Is it like an escape? Is it, um, in your case, it was like the salve that made you feel, as you said, yourself. But what is that thing? Yeah, I think that uh, this is something I've spent a lot of time thinking about. As somebody who's been in recovery since 1998, I've been to thousands of AA meetings. I know so many people in recovery. And over the course of 10 years of hosting my podcast, I've had so many experts in the realm of addiction, sobriety, and recovery. And I've come to believe that this notion of addiction lives on a much broader spectrum than we may realize. When we think of addiction, we think of uh, the junkie or, you know, the gutter drunk. Um, but in between, you know, that polarity, there's a whole spectrum of addictive and I would even weave in obsessive compulsive behavior that ranges from continuing to get into the same bad relationship to being unable to put the phone down, uh, where we are seizing moments and opportunities through behavior or substance to distract ourselves from ourselves because we are experiencing discomfort with whatever emotion is coming up. And it's easier to divert to something that will give us a sense of ease and comfort or distraction than to sit with that sense of dis-ease. And I think that any kind of recurring, repeated behavior pattern that mimics that could be characterized as an addiction. It may be mild, but I think nonetheless, it's not, you know, it's qualitatively the same thing as the person who can't stop drinking. And it all goes back to this inside job of trying to understand what makes us tick, the nature and origin of those discomforts, what triggers those, and trying to find a way to not only sit with those, but confront them and work through them so you can ultimately transcend them and liberate yourself from the behavior or the substance or whatever it may be that is the kind of go-to default thing that you do when you start to feel like out of control or um, nervous 
or anxious or insecure or perhaps uh, you know triggered or, or or any number of kind of emotional impulses that might arise. What is the cost of not learning to be with myself? So I'm looking at all these things, phone addiction. I'm definitely addicted to my phone. All of these addictions, I've got some of them in you know very varying degrees. Um, so what? Mm -hmm. What's the cost? Well, time will tell, right? right? Um, maybe there isn't uh, a cost that is so significant that it mandates that you rectify that behavior. Again, it's a spectrum, right? So for you, you might be able to engage in a certain behavior without having negative ramifications in your life that are significant enough for you to redress that. For somebody else, it might destroy their life. But I think developing an awareness around those behaviors and paying attention enough such that if you start to find yourself experiencing negative life ramifications as a result of those behaviors, you're not um, in denial over that and you can make a course correction. And what's the upside then of just learning to sit with yourself as opposed to reaching for the phone or for the, the cake or for the, the, the beer? What is the, what is the upside of that? You know, I say this because I think I live in a generation that have become so used to distracting ourselves um, and the thought of like meditating or not having our phone on us is actually, I mean, it's like a, it's like a phobia. Mm -hmm. um, we, we, we haven't learned to sit with ourselves in silence with our thoughts. If you can't sit silently with yourself, with your thoughts, then you are not living an intentional examined life. And I think to be addicted to your phone or to be living in that reactive mode where you're constantly distracting yourself robs you of something that we need as human beings, which is rumination and boredom. That is the juice of creativity. And as a creative person, somebody who does this show and talks to amazing people and is writing a book and is very much in a space where your creativity is really uh, the driver of everything that you do, I would say to you, it is of paramount importance to protect your boredom, to protect your quiet time, to put boundaries around those distractions. Otherwise, you are not gonna be doing your best work and you are going to be depriving your audience of the best version of yourself. The other thing is connection. It's definitely, it's definitely robbed me of connection. Well, it's, it's pernicious in that way because at least with social media, it gives you the illusion of connection. And you know we're sitting here together because of social media. Like you reached out to me, I reached out to you. So it's not a binary. There are amazing things about it. And my entire career has been built on these digital tools. And they're very important to you know how I kind of navigate the world. But at what point does that meter kind of toggle over into you know the the red zone where I'm being used by it and it's robbing me of my humanity and it's diluting me into this idea that I'm connecting with other people. But in the analog world, I'm just at home all the time and I'm not actually interacting in the real world. And you know, I think one thing we share, Stephen, is our show is all about the in-person experience. Like I, I tried to do the Zoom thing. I can't do it. It's like, this is not why I'm doing this. Yeah. I'm not getting, it feels transactional and weird. And, yeah. and you know, as, as, as much as these, these tools, which are phenomenal, um, have given us the ability to connect in a certain way, it's not true connection. And I think, you know, in order to really feel like we're part of the human race, 
we're hardwired to be with people in real world settings. When I look at your story, I see multiple chapters and there's transformation in every chapter, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse, but it's always forward. It's, it seems like it was the path that you had to, to go on. You, you talk there about the first chapter of your life, which is you're young, you, there's bullying, there's this feeling of sort of inadequacy and there's isolation. What's the next chapter? Yeah, so um, awkward, insecure kid, difficulty making friends, um, but I found solace in the swimming pool and that was really my safe haven, perhaps my first addiction. Um, and in lockstep with my improvement in that space, um, came uh, came better grades. I started to perform better athletically. So by the time I was 18 and graduating high school, I had my pick of going to any college I wanted to, got into Harvard, Princeton, ended up going to Stanford, which in addition to just being a premier um, university, also happened to have the number one collegiate swimming program in the country. So basically anything I wanted to do was like laid out in front of me. Uh, I arrive in California for college. I grew up in Washington, D.C., so I traveled 3,000 miles away to go to school, um, enter alcohol. And that be began the sort of slow decline of my ability to express my potential, not only as an athlete and as a student, but as a human being, because it just gradually denigrated um, all of my values and and sort of um, dented my aspirations to the point where I no really I no, I no longer really cared about my trajectory or where I was headed with my life, and was solely concerned with rooting out where my next good time would be, and those were the good times. And I would say that initially alcohol really saved me. It taught me how to be a social person. Like I enjoyed going to parties and I enjoyed figuring out how to talk to people. And it was really this fuel that transformed me from this navel gazing insecure kid into somebody who felt like I could comport myself in a social situation as long as I was using alcohol. I've taken some of those skills and I'm now able to apply them without alcohol. Um, but very slowly over time, you know, my life, the quality of my life just sort of declined and declined and declined. So I was a functional alcoholic um, for many years, um, but I knew very early on that my relationship with alcohol was different from that of my peers because I would be the last person to leave. I was immediately sneaking drinks. I was the one who was throwing up and blacking out when everyone else knew what time it was to go home. I started going out like more and more nights every single week. Uh, and then fast forwarding through later years, um, hiding my drinks, sneaking my drinks, hiding the empties and doing kind of all the dark stuff um, that one does when they fall prey to this condition. Um, and it, 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 there was nothing really sexy or romantic or rock and roll about it. It was just really kind of sad and pathetic to the point where at the end, I was alone, alienated from my friends. My family didn't want anything to do with me until I sorted this out. I was on the precipice of, you know, somehow I got through law school, but I was working as a lawyer. I was on the precipice of getting fired, was living in a sh shitty apartment with barely any furniture, sleeping on a mattress on the floor. And it was, it, was, it was very dark for a very long period of time. When did you get married? The first, your first marriage in 1995? 20, must have been no, 20. that was, so it would have been 90, 
96, I think. Yeah. Roughly 20. So I had an ill-fated marriage that ended on the honeymoon. That's a sordid story that would take a very long time to untangle and explain. Um, A marriage that ended in the honeymoon. It ended on the honeymoon. Yeah. Uh, Incredibly um, painful, embarrassing chapter of my life. Um, That that marriage took place after I'd gotten the, the two DUIs, but I was endeavoring to get sober. And I think my fiance, not quite my wife, because we didn't sign the marriage certificate, which is a whole other aspect of the story. Um, I think that she realized that I would be problematic as a partner but didn't have the courage to call the whole thing off and allowed the wedding um, ceremony to take place, even though she didn't want to be married to me. And it all kind of came to head on the honeymoon, um, which is the last time that I saw her. And that was really my bottom uh, as an alcoholic, even though I drank for a period of time after that because it was so emotionally devastating and painful. Um, that was really the nadir where I realized that my life had hit the skids in, in, in just a, a, you know, a way that I could have never imagined for myself. Post that, um, that I was going to call it, I guess it, it was a wedding post that wedding and everything that happened, you returned to drinking again, you relapsed because of the pain of that experience. Absolutely. How long does that last? That, that, um, it was a long time ago. I think it was about six more months of my life kind of circling the drain um, before I finally decided that I needed to really take responsibility for my behavior. At that point, what are, what are the people around you that love you doing and saying? Uh, friends slowly stepping backwards from me. Um, distancing themselves from me. Uh, My parents were terribly worried uh, and concerned and they had sought out counsel of their own and started attending Al-Anon and I believe they had seen a therapist as well and and the advice that they got was like you need to cut ties with this guy like you can't will him into doing what you know is in his best interest you have to detach and i recall very vividly a conversation that i had with my dad where he's like i know what you're doing it's very clear uh this path that you're on and we just can't be part of it anymore and if and when you're ready to make a change or to really entertain sobriety in a real way we're here for you we're your parents and and we love you but until that point like we really don't want to hear from you anymore so that was a brutal pill to swallow incredibly painful but also catalytic because it snapped me out of whatever denial i was harboring um, about getting over on people or them not really knowing how i was actually behaving Um, and i think it was an important step in helping me realize just how dire the circumstances were for me at that time when your father said that what did you hear i heard you're a failure and you are unlovable. Do you think that was the right thing for him to say? I think in my case, and I'm only speaking from 
you know, my perspective in this particular set of circumstances, it was the right thing to do because it effectively moved me in the direction that I needed to be moved in. And they had tried the other way, which is loving me and being supportive and, and kind of um, offering up a soft landing pad. Uh, and that was not working. And I think they needed to do that for themselves to protect themselves as well. And, and I respect that choice. You know, I've been in many situations trying to help people get sober and it's a very delicate, difficult thing to do. It's just really challenging because if somebody's not ready and they don't want to get sober, there's very little that you can do to try to, you know, create that epiphany in them. Willingness is a self-generated, um, response that you can't instill in somebody externally. Uh, and until somebody's really willing to confront their demons, um, you can't compel them to do so. So uh, that's why I think sobriety or addiction is so baffling and so painful for the loved ones of people that suffer who can so clearly see you're killing yourself, you need to do this, and yet that person won't make that choice. It's not just addiction and um, sobriety in that sense that I was thinking about when I asked that question because I've got people in my life that I've tried to help in various ways. And I've got a one, one friend who has struggled with um, pretty severe addiction. And your natural inclination is to try and jump in there and give them advice and help them and pay for this and sort, sort this out, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. But after, you know, years and years of it never working, what do you do then? And I've, I'm thinking of one particular example of a friend of mine who's struggled with addiction and slowly everybody has just fallen away. The person's management mm -hmm. has fallen away. Their friends have fallen away. Um, and I wonder sometimes, I wonder to myself, is that what you have to do? Is that, do you have to basically give them a void enough space and stop holding them up in like sort of artificially suspending them uh, and let them go to the bottom? Mm -hmm. let them go to that rock bottom. There is a logic in that. You know, you don't want to coddle that person. You certainly don't want to be codependent yeah. in their behavior. In other words, making excuses for them that makes it easier for them to continue down that destructive path. Um, and there is wisdom in just saying, hey man, I love you. I'm available when you're ready to get help. Uh, but you know, you're, you're on your own thing, man. And I just, I can't be part of it. So call me when you're ready, but until then, Good luck to you because the addiction elevator is always going down. It's a progressive disease. It only moves in one direction. The best case scenario is that person's life stays the same, but in almost every case, it continues to decline. And it will decline to the point where the pain experienced by the person who is the addict or the alcoholic uh, becomes more unbearable than the fear of the change. And that is where willingness is born. And again, it's not something that you can instill in that person. You could, you could like hijack your friend and throw him in the back of a car and drop him off in a rehab, but he might escape from the rehab or he'll sit in the back and just bide his time until he or she gets out and they can go back to whatever they're doing. That's why this is such a difficult um, problem to solve. It is an internally generated thing. The people that I know that have been able to get sober and stay sober are the people that shoulder responsibility for their own sobriety. 
you can't get sober for somebody else. I'm getting sober for my spouse or my kids, or you know, I'm getting sober because if I don't, my boss is gonna fire me. Those are, those. you might be able to do that for a short period of time, but for the true addict, uh, unless you're doing it for yourself and you're making it your number one priority, uh, chances are you're not gonna you're not gonna last over the long haul, and it's confusing. And when you love that person, it puts you in a very treacherous position because if you do create that boundary and that person goes off and something terrible happens, will you feel responsible or will you feel like you didn't do enough or if you had just done this or that, that wouldn't have happened? Um, and that's a very real predicament to put yourself in. There's something quite counterproductive in the sense that when you're trying to help that person, what often happens is your relationship with them becomes strained. And then when your relationship becomes strained and you, you become frustrated with the lack of sort of effectiveness of your support, then arguments start. You might say some things that you regret, further tarnishing that person's self-esteem, self-worth, or whatever's triggering them to try and escape themselves through whatever addiction they might have. And it, it, it actually can make, make their situation significantly worse. Sure. Destroy the relationship. Right, and- which is why it's important to, to interface with that from a place of neutrality, yeah. right? To not get emotionally agitated or activated by it. And which a good impossible. way of, of kind of recalling that or reinforcing that is to understand that there is the person, your friend, and there is this disease, this addiction, right? And if this person is acting in their disease, that's not the person. They're not a bad person. They're afflicted by something so powerful that they're unable to override it and, and you know, be that friend that you remember. And I think when you, when you kind of approach it through that lens, you can have a little bit more compassion for that person um, rather than take it personally because they're not they're not acting out of animus towards you. They're suffering from something that's so powerful that they're unable to, to control it. Okay, so this was a quote I, I found about your re- opinion of balance. He finds balance extremely difficult and believes that if something is good, then the more the better. He believes balance is for ordinary people and he wants to be extraordinary. He says this can be a blessing and a curse. Yeah, definitely a blessing and a curse. Um, I am hardwired for extremes. Uh, this has been both a superpower and an Achilles heel. It's the thing that has fueled me and allowed me to, you know, achieve uh, some pretty cool things. But it's also been the thing that um, has almost killed me. So it's that love-hate thing. But I think behind it, this notion of living a balanced life that we get served up, like you need to be balanced. And, you know, the best way to kind of pursue your life is in a balanced way, everything in balance. And the social conditioning around that idea is so powerful that for years I just felt like a terrible person or um, like less than because I just could never figure out that equation to make everything feel like it was even adequately balanced uh, because I feel most alive in those extremes. And that's part of what addiction is. Like you're just searching for those peak experiences in unhealthy ways and also in healthy ways through athletics and and you know, and through uh, creativity and 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 other avenues, um, but I always felt guilty about that. Like other people seem to be telling me that I shouldn't be doing this, and yet this is where I feel like myself. And finally, I got to the place where I was like, "Fuck this whole balance thing!" Like this is who I am, and I decided to embrace it. Now that doesn't mean that um, you just blindly pursue 
these obsessions to the point of self-destruction. What it means is for me, again, not giving advice, uh, in my experience, when, when I allow myself to uh, immerse myself in something that um, fascinates me, whether it's an ultra distance race or writing a book or whatever it is, um, giving myself permission to really focus on that and take it all the way to the wall is where I do my best work. But that is only acceptable as long as that pendulum that's swinging all the way up over here swings back, goes this way and comes to the center. Because we all have buckets in our life of values that we you know, need to nourish. So a creative project, for example, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna do that and that's fine as long as I come back and my family is nourished, my relationship is nourished, my friendships are nourished, all these other areas that are important to me don't fall by the wayside for too long. So balance in the macro, but not balance in the micro. So on a day-to-day -day basis or a week-to-week -week basis, my life is wildly out of balance. But if you look at it over the course of a year, you telescope out, I think, I think it's much more imbalanced than than one might suspect. Super interesting. I've, I think uh, using that example of the swing, is it called a pendulum? Mm -hmm. In society, we started by glorifying hustle culture, I guess, and being out of balance. And then there was kind of a movement towards that's toxic. Right. And now I feel like... The new pride <laughs> is like, I don't set my alarm clock. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I feel like a little bit it's coming back the other way where people are going, fuck work-life balance. Like that's, it's such, balance is such a subjective thing and work is completely different for everybody. Like this is my work. This is mm -hmm. not, I'm not, you know, for someone else, their relationship with that work might be tedium. It might be depressing. They might be doing something that really doesn't fill them up. But I think there needs to be nuance in the fact that all work is different. Every individual is clearly different and it is wired to find the fulfillment in different ways. So work-life balance in and of itself is a pretty ridiculous concept to think that, that there is a balance. There, there really must be, a, as you kind of described, a subjective balance where there's a balance for Steve. And as long as I don't fall in sacrifice, social connection, isolation and all the other things, mm -hmm. then I'm balanced. My balance could you know, look much different from yours. For whom and when, right? If you're 22 years old and you've got this idea for a startup and you're a coder and you wanna code like a maniac, like knock yourself out. You have no other responsibilities. You have the time, you have the freedom to do that in that moment. But that 22 year old, 20 years later with kids and a mortgage and whatever, it's a different time. That person's in a different place. These things, you know, can't be, they have to be contextualized, right? And Yes, if you want to achieve something great, you are going to have to work very hard and you're going to have to get out of your comfort zone. You may even need to be obsessed. If you're living an entirely balanced life where you're home at five o'clock and you're always at dinner and all, it's like you're making it very difficult to achieve something extraordinary. That extraordinary thing is going to require an extraordinary commitment, which means in the social construct of balance, you are going to be out of balance. If you're going to feel uncomfortable with that, because you have other priorities in your life, then maybe that's not for you. And being out of balance to pursue something great, in my opinion, is perfectly fine. Again, as long as you allow that pendulum to swing back and those other 
things in your life that are important are nourished and attended to. So it's a very specific thing. It depends on who you are, what stage of life you're in, what you're seeking, and having the self-awareness to understand that you can't be everywhere all the time. And you can't be 100% for all of the things that are important to you in your life in every single day. So it's about conscious awareness and intentionality about where you're rowing that boat. You can only row your boat in one direction. Are you rowing the Stephen boat towards Stephen today? Are you going to row it towards your girlfriend? Well, you gotta, you're going to have to do a lot of rowing in a lot of different directions. It's just knowing that you're making a conscious choice and doing that um, with that understanding and appreciation, I think is really important. Um, but all of this is to put the lie to the idea that anybody is living a balanced life on a minute-to-minute, hour-to-hour, day-to-day basis. It's like a, it's a construct that I think makes people feel guilty and yeah. bad about themselves because none of us are adhering to that idealized version of a balanced life that we have a mental picture of. You can't have it all. You you left rehab in September 1998. Um, and earlier on when you were talking about transformation, you described someone who goes from being a fairly ordinary person to running a marathon. That was one of the sort of examples you gave of something that intrigues you. Like, how did they do that? That's pretty much, in many respects, what you went on to do upon leaving rehab is you, your life slowly moved towards ultra-athletic sports. Yes and no. I mean, I think that uh, the the shorthand kind of Google version of my story makes it look like all this stuff happened in a very compressed period of time. Uh, but actually when I left rehab, which is where I lived for a hundred days and resumed my life in Los Angeles, I spent the next 10 years trying to solve the dilemma of my life that I had self-created. I had to repair my relationships. I had to become trustworthy to other people again. I had to, um, you know, be somebody who was reliable and would show up on time when they said they would, all those sort of like normal things that normal people do. I had to um, rebuild for myself. So for 10 years, I immersed myself in the recovery community in Los Angeles, and I tried to become that corporate lawyer that I thought that I wanted to be, um, to be kind of approved of by my parents and by society without really grappling with um, who I wanted to be uh, because I was so caught up and so ashamed of my past and embarrassed of how I'd screwed my life up that I wanted to prove to myself and to everyone else that I could be that person that I was at 18 when I had all of these opportunities and choices. And I was blind to kind of the inner journey, despite sobriety, the blind to like really trying to figure out like what made me tick and what I might want to do for myself that felt like an indulgence. And so the ultra stuff came much later. That came like, so I got out of rehab at 31. It wasn't until I was turning 40 that I had another bottom where I had to reckon with my lifestyle choices with diet and movement, et cetera, because I'd put on 50 pounds and was just pursuing this corporate life um, to the point of, 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 of illness, honestly. Like I was, um, although I'd been this athlete, I just could barely make it up a simple flight of stairs without being winded, tightness in my chest, heart disease runs in my family, and just had a second 
situation in which I realized I needed to overhaul my life. So there was a whole 10 year period in between those those kind of moments of awakening. That 10 year period is a 10 year period that a lot of people listening to this right now can relate to, where you found yourself in a professional context or professional endeavor without asking yourself the question of like, who am I and what am I actually interested in? And you might be doing it because your mom wants you to be a doctor sure. or you have the Indian parents and they came over here and they want you to be a lawyer, whatever it might be. I hear that story a lot. What is the question it, people in that situation should be asking themselves? And how do they take that first step in transformation from becoming the banker that's in the city with a suit and tie on right now listening to this to the person that like would make, make them whole and full and and love themselves in their life? Like, what is the first step? Is it a question? Is it a retreat they need to go on? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that question is probably different for everybody, but how about just asking yourself, who are you? And I mean that in the broadest sense, perhaps the most unanswerable spiritual sense, but I also mean it in the very tangible sense of like, what are you doing? Are you really on the path that you wanna be on? Did you choose this path? Are you here because of external pressures or expectations that you didn't ask for? And I think when you turn inward and start exploring your interior to try to grapple with um, what is making you tick, what is impulsing the decisions that you're making, the big decisions and the small decisions, and developing a latticework or an understanding of what those mechanics are sets you on a trajectory to making better decisions for yourself. So it's not like maybe that banker is supposed to be a banker, maybe super happy, that's fine. I'm not here to tell people they should quit their jobs. I'm just saying that an examined life, meaning that inward glance into uh, understanding why you're making the decisions that you're making, um, historically, uh, you know, the way in which you were raised that might've set you up to make decisions you think you're making for yourself, but are actually in reaction to unconscious, uh, uh, you know, kind of triggers that are built into you. Uh, I think developing an awareness of that is really important in trying to understand that question. And it took me a very long time to untangle that knot. I don't think it's a simple process. I think it's different for everybody. It can come in the form of talking to a therapist or meditation. There is no one modality for that. But I think simply the commitment to try to understand that, I think, is the process of gaining that understanding to help you make more intentional decisions for yourself. And maybe it starts with an easy prompt, like what did you enjoy doing when you were eight years old that you don't do anymore? And why don't you do it anymore? Reengaging with you know, the childlike nature uh, that is perhaps lost as we grow older and kind of um, get into the flow of our professional lives. One of the most important questions I think I would add as well is, how do you feel? We very rarely ask ourselves that. And I think we all have this sort of internal compass, which we've been given by life, which is like, how do you feel in this situation? How do you truly feel? Not like, how do you feel in the context of, is your mother happy or is your father happy or is society impressed by you? But like, how do you actually feel? Mm. You know, and I think that sometimes for me has sat apart from the accomplishment. So I could be achieving something great and know that people are impressed and happy. But really, I'm going through a fucking shit time internally. Right. And I'm tuning into that voice of like, how do I feel? 
and tuning out of the like, how do people feel about me? <laughs> right. Um, has has really helped me in those moments where I've got to make a big decision to quit. And I don't think people ask themselves that question enough. Well, they may ask themselves that question, but the answer is flippant, right? It's like, I'm good. Cool. Yeah, I yeah, feel yeah. good. You know, yeah, I feel yeah. I slept good last night. No. Like, how do you really feel? And then continuing to peel back the layers until it gets really uncomfortable. And then, you know, you're in the, you're in the sweet spot, right? That's where the juice is. I've peeled them back. I re and I've done, you know, I've raised my awareness. I realize I'm in the wrong place, but I'm 39 years old and I've got kids. I've got a house. We live in this part of London so I can get to work quickly. We've built our lives around this, you know, person I thought I wanted to be. And I'm held in place by the, my friendship group and my mum lives down. People have that fear. They think, how do I, how do I break out of that? How do I shed? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first I would say to that person, congratulations. Like you created a life for yourself. Like on some level, even if you want to leave that career path or you're unfulfilled in that, you still are somebody who is deserving of acknowledgement for building something. And, you know, that's an amazing thing. So it's not about casting that aside or um, disrespecting it. For me, I would say to that person, what is it that gets you excited? Like, what is it that you feel is unnourished in your life? Do you have a creative itch? Is there something calling you or something again that you used to do as a kid that you really enjoyed and for some reason unbeknownst to you you don't do it anymore maybe it's music like yeah it could be music or or stand up or you play football right like being on a football team or doing something you know just having coffee with your friend or what have you uh finding a way to build that back into your life in a way that isn't going to derail your current life but i think just breathing on that like giving space to the things that bring you joy in the most primal sense, like the simplest things that just you remember made you happy that you've forgotten and recapturing that and finding a way to respect that, protect it, nourish it, um, and and inject it into your life. And I think the more that you, you kind of tend to that garden, suddenly, oh, a little opportunity over here pops up or something is telling me I should move this way. These are very subtle energies that you have to be present for in order to um, notice them when they appear. But I think those are the subtle energies. That's the like, those are the waves you wanna be surfing. And you can do that while you're working at the bank. They don't have to be mutually exclusive. And over time, maybe you start moving a little over this way. Five years later, your life is unrecognizable. And I think this goes to the impatience that we all have. We all want to be this idealized version of ourselves, happier, fitter, thinner, richer, whatever it is, overnight. And we overestimate what we can accomplish in a year or maybe in, in a couple of years and completely underestimate what we could do in a decade. We're not wired to think in decades. It seems too intangible. But if all you do is make tiny little changes to build in habits into your life that bring you joy or fulfillment or happiness or purpose in incremental micro allotments that don't disrupt the rest of your life. You do that for 10 years straight, your life is going to be different. And I can promise you that. 10 years after rehab, you have what you describe as your second rock bottom. You're a workaholic. You're trying to 
sort of appease the perception of people in your life to make them proud, I guess. Um, just before your 40th birthday, this is when that sort of reckoning in your life takes place. What is that reckoning in your life? What did you realize? And, and what did you see as the solution to that confrontation? Yeah, so I had spent the better part of 10 years uh, people pleasing and doing my best to be successful living somebody else's life, unbeknownst to me, doing all the right things, checking all the boxes, becoming successful. So if you were on the outside looking in, it looked like I was doing pretty well. Inside, I was dying because my soul, my spirit was unheard and undernourished. Like I didn't know how to pay attention to myself or the signals of my soul who were telling me, I don't think you're that happy doing this. And repressing that year after year after year to the point where uh, I couldn't do it anymore. So I was harboring a bit of an existential crisis about how I was living my life, being this lawyer and kind of showing up in the world in a certain way that always felt like a costume that didn't fit me. Meanwhile, uh, although sober from drugs and alcohol, I sort of transferred a lot of that addiction energy into, into food and was eating you know, a terrible fast food diet, gained a lot of weight, was inactive, even though I'd been a swimmer in college, wasn't really moving my body in any meaningful way for a number of years. This existential crisis that I was having collided with this health scare shortly before I turned 40, where I was going up a flight of stairs after a long day at work and couldn't even make it all the way up. Had to stop halfway up the flight, winded, out of breath, tightness in my chest, like wheezing, <laughs> you know, thinking, I swam at Stanford. Like I was a world ranked swimmer. I can't, I'm, I'm like 39 about to turn 40. I feel like shit, I'm fat. And it just broke that spell of denial about how I was living where it became intolerable to continue along that path. And it was very much like the day that I decided to go to rehab, like this moment back to willingness, like suddenly out of the blue, I was blessed with this realization, not only that I needed to change my lifestyle habits, but that I had the willingness to actually take action on that. And because the decision that I had made 10 years prior when I went to rehab had been so transformational, like I could have woken up that day and made a different decision. What would my life look like? And I had this palpable sense that once again, this was just such a moment where if I could make a decision like I had 10 years ago, maybe I could change the trajectory of my life. And I know that these moments are fleeting and, and they require kind of immediate action or they pass, right? You could say, maybe I should eat better or go to the gym once in a while, like I'm tired of feeling like shit. That's so vague, I knew that that wasn't gonna work for me and I needed to do something immediate that was also difficult that would mimic the experience of going into a treatment center for drugs and alcohol. Like I needed to have a structured situation that would snap me out of my comfort zone and kind of create a new trajectory upon which I could build something different. I think, I think about this a lot in like businesses and organizations they almost need to stage a crisis, I call it, to make change happen. Because when you're, when you're in an organization and there's maybe thousands of people, and let's say it's AI or an innovation comes along, people will go, yeah, it's a problem, but you know, it's fine. 
and then they'll kind of carry on, keep on keeping on. The organization almost needs to stage a crisis, like get everyone in a room and say, we're changing today mm. and really sort of terrify, <laughs> terrify their team about the, the prospect of not changing. It's almost like staging a rock bottom because it will be the frog in the frying pan. It will slowly creep upon you if you don't right. at some point, as I call it, like stage a crisis, which is to really get clear on where this is heading and where we're sleepwalking ourselves into, whether it's with our health, our relationships. I actually had this conversation with a friend of mine in his relationship because he's now in a, a sexless relationship and he's really un unhappy, but he's not saying anything about it. He's kind of bringing, bringing it up sort of quietly once in a while and his unhappiness in the relationship and resentment is coming out in other ways in the relationship, like arguments and fighting, where he needs to stop and, and like stage a crisis, mm -hmm. like not allow it to be brushed under the carpet anymore and sit down and say, listen, if we can't solve this, I have to leave this relationship. And like, I want to solve it with you, but it's a deal breaker for me. See what I mean? Yeah, I get what you're saying. Basically, short of of like sleepwalking yourself towards the cliff's edge, yeah. do staging an intervention on yeah. your life yeah. by, you know, like concocting a crisis Sounding that's going to compel you to confront yeah. the elephant in the room that is the thing that is holding you back. That's because, obvious to everyone yeah. else. And yet you're refusing to look at it. Yeah, right? because we, as you said earlier, we want to avoid discomfort. So if we can just sweep discomfort under the carpet mm -hmm. and procrastinate it into tomorrow, we do. We do that in businesses, we do it in our own lives. So how do we maximize the discomfort today by, by presenting what the future will look like if we don't take action right now? Right. And there is often a point of no return in relationships and in business, for sure, for sure. So... Yeah. yeah, I think that's a very kind of pragmatic, uh, you know, three-dimensional, uh, actionable way to look at it. Perhaps a more mystical way to approach this is to say that when you are living your life out of alignment with your best self, the universe comes knocking and it knocks gently. Like you're, you're maybe you're out telling lies or whatever it is. Like you're just not, you're not, you're not living your life in in integrity, like in alignment with your own values. And we all do this, right? We're not all living perfect lives. So, and, and, and so when you do that, like there'll be nudges and those nudges will be very graceful at first. And if you ignore them a little, a little bit louder, right? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. I can, I can, you know, I can deal with that. The knocks start to get more intense, more intense, more intense, more intense. And then you get two DUIs in six months and you're in jail or your partner leaves you or whatever it is, right? Like how much pain are you willing to tolerate? How loud does the knock have to be before you're willing to course correct? Change is very difficult. We don't want to make change. Or look, if, 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 uh, if change were easy or it was a logical thing, like here's the answer, do this. And if everybody just did it, there would be no self-help industry. There wouldn't need to be any books. You just tell somebody what to do and they do it. So why don't they do it, right? We don't like to be out of our comfort zone. We have a certain way that we live our life. And until that is so disruptive, disrupted, we're going to continue on that path, right? So the question becomes, how much pain do you have to be in before uh, you're willing to uh, walk through the fear of the unknown that the change presents. How loud does the knock have to be? How low does the elevator have to, to drop? 
Um, and I think that that answer is different for everybody. But the amazing and confusing thing about it is that the possibility of change exists in all moments. We can make that choice at any time. We don't have to suffer. We don't have to be in pain. And yet we still don't do it. So Why? unlocking that mystery. Yeah. The I mean, thing. well, there's your book. You can answer that question. Well, I've been playing around with this idea in my book. Mm -hmm. There was a chapter I was going to write about time. Right. So I wanted to write something about time and time management. So I thought the best place to start is talking about death because that kind of puts time in context. It's finite. Mm -hmm. um, so I started writing about that. You know, if you're 35 years old, you've got 17,000 days left. I'm trying to you know, find all these ways where people can visualize the con because of what you said, people can't think of decades. We can't think of finality. We can't think of infinity. We can't think of long periods of time. I also, at some level, don't believe we, we know we're going to die. Mm -hmm. We don't live our right. lives accordingly. Yeah. We, you know, we think it happens to other people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, deep down, we're like, somehow I'm going to sidestep yeah, this thing. It's yeah, not yeah. actually going to happen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you see that in our decisions, uh -huh. like the things we pour our attention into. Clearly, we don't think we're, we're on a clock here. Right. Um, a clock we can't see. So that's how I started the chapter. Then I went into time and I was like, okay, time management techniques. I looked, I was thinking about my own time management techniques. I then was like, I'll Google it. Chat GTP. Went on ChatGTP, talked to me about time management techniques. There's so many of them. And I thought to myself, the reason why there's so many is the same reason there are so many fad diets, because none of them work unless you have discipline. So that people just keep making new ones and they keep selling because none of them work without this thing called discipline. So what causes discipline? And then I arrived at this sort of discipline equation in my head where I kind of believe when you want, I'm going to say this in a super vague way, broad way, when your perception of how meaningful the goal is, plus the enjoyment and psychological engagement you get from the pursuit towards the goal. So for me, I really want to be a DJ. I've played around with the idea for a long time. I finally made the decision I wanted to do it. Why do I want to do it? Absolutely love music, love the thrill and the, how energized I am from, from performance. Plus the psychological engagement and enjoyment I get from the pursuit. It's like meditation DJing and the practice of it, right? So you go upstairs into my kitchen. I spend hours listening to my favorite music and merging it with other songs I love for hours, forgetting mm -hmm. about the whole world, minus the perceived psychological cost of the pursuit. So what does it cost me to pursue DJing? And I think that is roughly my discipline equation. So if you think about these three elements, how bad you want it, how enjoyable it is, what does it cost? You can kind of think of how, why people might or might not change. And it somewhat fits into what you said about when the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of making a change, then people make mm -hmm. the change um when they really really want it and it's more enjoyable than it is painful to go in that direction behavior changes right well i would take it one step further but Please. first let me let me say this i would say that you're already a dj you're making uh an assumption around what it means to be a dj or to pursue djing that comes with a lot of baggage. It means success. Maybe you're envisioning a big crowd of people who are yeah. listening to your music, but the fact that it brings you joy and you found a way to carve time out to nourish that, it doesn't matter how far it goes or doesn't go as mm -hmm. long as you are kind of cultivating that out of that purity of spirit because it nourishes your life. So that's what I mean when I was talking about the banker, right? Mm -hmm. Like just DJ at your kitchen table. Like it doesn't have to be any more than that. If it, if, if you're finding so much joy in it, then you can recalibrate that equation about how much energy, resources, and time you're going to invest in it. But right now, 
if it fits into your life and it's it's making your life better, then the question would be, does it need to be more than that? Do you need it to be attached to some external validation mm -hmm. or monetary reward or recognition in order for you to believe that you actually are a DJ? And so I'm not saying there's an answer to that question, but it's something to think about. This, the, the reason I gave the DJing example is because it was something I, I was able to stick at. I was able to quote unquote, essentially change. And there's certain, and my health was the same thing. It fits into that discipline equation of at some point in my life, I saw this pandemic happen. I saw the fragility of this thing called health in my young 25 years. I'd never even mm -hmm. knew was there. I never even knew I had health because mine had fortunately always been well. And then upon seeing the pandemic play out and hearing the doctors and scientists say that your current health, how you know obesity is linked to your chances of um, suffering, having sort of worse effects of this disease. That was enough for me to put me in the gym for the next three years. And I haven't missed a, a more than two days since pretty much in a week for the last three years. That was my behavior change. Before then, I was the guy mm -hmm. with the fast food. Right. So that was the moment. That was the line in the sand moment. That piece of information created willingness in you. Which is the first part of that equation, which is the why. Like, why do I care about my health? Right. It added so much weight to me caring about my health. But discipline is easy when you have that why yeah. answered, right? Yeah. So if it was just that easy, I think that more people would be able to make positive changes in their life. But I think where it gets more complicated is when we understand beneath the surface that it's our emotional lives that are truly the things that hold us back from accessing that potential. You can be incredibly disciplined, but if you think you're a piece of shit or you don't deserve good things in your life or you're being impulsed by some trauma that happened to you, you were abused as a young person, that's gonna show up in your life as a barrier or an impediment from you doing the thing that you know you need to do to become the person that you could potentially become. So the head discipline can drive us so far, but if we don't sort out the heart and what is making the heart beat, what is making us uh, move in one direction versus another and untangling or detaching or transcending um, the emotional baggage that is the true impediment to our growth, discipline is only gonna take you so far. So you um, became an ultra endurance sports athlete from that point of where you couldn't walk up the stairs without losing your breath. What was that transformation? So after that moment, I decided to take responsibility for my well-being um, and thus began a pretty long and inelegant and nonlinear process of first trying to figure out how to eat in a way that would allow me to feel good in my body. That began with a seven day juice detox cleanse that I did, not because I felt like I needed to detox anything, but I needed to recreate the experience of detoxing off alcohol that I had in rehab. Like I needed to do something that was gonna be hard and uncomfortable and not eating and just drinking juice seemed like a good way to accomplish that. I'd never gone a day without eating food before. Um, and that was an experience where I was incredibly uncomfortable and I felt horrible for a couple days. But on the seventh day, I felt amazing. And I couldn't believe that only drinking juices for seven days could result on day seven in this boost of vitality and 
um, mental acuity that I hadn't experienced in a long time as somebody who was eating cheeseburgers every day. Uh, and, and that made me want to figure out a way to feel like that all the time. And so I ended up trying a bunch of different diets and what worked for me ultimately after trying many different things was going entirely plant-based. Um, I'm not here to tell everyone that that's what they should do, but that's what agreed with me. And that's the way I've eaten for the last 16 years. And, you know, this, um, this uh, approach to nutrition restored my vitality and gave me a renewed sense of energy, so much so that I had difficulty sitting still and finally wanted to like move again and pulled out an old pair of running shoes from the closet and just started moving my feet again. And I went back to the pool for the first time in a very long time and was just connecting, frankly, with these things that brought me joy as a young person. Like I was a swimmer and I hadn't done it in a long time and I'd forgotten um, what it feels like to jump into a swimming pool on a sunny day and feel the water and connect with my breath and, you know, move my legs on a trail at dawn. And I really loved it. And I felt like that was a journey towards answering these questions that I was having on the existential front about what I was going to do with my life. Cause I had a lot of confusion at that time and just the mental space of like being alone with my breath in the pool or on a trail running was very healing for me. And I had no aspirations of, of becoming a competitive athlete with it. I just wanted to feel good. I wanted to like lose this gut, you know, frankly, for vanity reasons. I didn't like how I looked in the mirror and the weight came off really quickly. And I felt like I was making incredible progress athletically week after week after week. Um, and then one day I went out like maybe six months into this experience and I was just going to run for like an hour. And I had one of those days, you're an athlete, you know, those days where you just feel like you just are bulletproof and you can go, go, go. And I just kept running and ended up running the better part of a marathon that day, like 24 miles. And I'd never done anything like that before. Despite having been a swimmer, I'd never been a runner. And that was a real watershed moment where I thought, wow, like I feel really good. I didn't know that you could feel this good. Certainly not at age 40. And that got me thinking about potential. And I'd never really realized my potential as an athlete in college because alcohol really um, destroyed my swimming career. And so there was a sense of unfinished business there, but I just wanted to see what I was capable of. And so that, um, that set me on this journey to find experiences where I could tap into that. And that's where I discovered this whole world of ultra endurance and these crazy races. And I became fascinated with that and ended up competing in this race called Ultraman, which is a three-day double Ironman race. And that's the race that I ended up distinguishing myself in. And, and really the instigating point in that was reading an article where David Goggins had done that race back in 2006, I think. And it was the story of how he got through that race that really inspired me. And because he wasn't the traditional endurance athlete, triathlete, um, I was able to convince myself that if he could do it, that maybe I could. And that set in motion me uh, training for this race and 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 uh, and competing in it a couple times. I've had two guests come here and tell me that we're in a comfort crisis. And what they mean by that is they say that we're kind of optimizing our way um, away from comfort in every sense of the word. We're like, you know, we live in these sort of room temperature rooms where we can go on a piece of glass and 
get someone to bring us our food in a metal car right to our doorstep and we're, we're and in fact discomfort and pressure is where our growth our health um, and all of these things our fulfillment in many cases comes from doing an ultra endurance race is for me you know the uh, one of the epitomes of of pressure and discomfort and sitting with that and accepting it do you believe that more of us should be making ourselves uncomfortable in that context more often and that there's tremendous value in that i think about it when i hear like a fucking hell steve why don't i get on my bike and and just ride and just see and push myself see what see where i can take it 100 percent. you don't grow unless you go out of your comfort zone and that's in every facet of your life if you want to become smarter you have to read books or go to school like that's not always comfortable there's a million different varieties of this but yes we are in a culture that prioritizes comfort and luxury, and it's all about making our lives easier. Ironically, what makes us happy is putting ourselves in difficult situations, not so difficult that they capsize our lives, but difficult enough that we're testing ourselves and we're grappling with obstacles and we're overcoming them. And on the other side, we feel a boost in self-esteem. We feel more ourselves. We feel more alive and we experience growth and connection with self and connection with other people. This is the stuff of life. And yet it is not the way that society is constructed to, we have to go out of our way now. We have to seek the, it used to be, this was everyday life just to survive, <laughs> right? And now we actually have to pay money and travel to places to have these experiences. What's so amazing is is that you know when I started doing these ultra races, they're they're all very kind of like low key, under the radar. There's not a lot of media attention on them. Um, you know, it's a subculture uh, that has been around for a while. But in the last decade, we've seen an explosion in interests uh, in in like doing hundred mile races. Like there's lotteries now to get into a race where you have to run hundred miles. Like if you told somebody in 1800 that this was going to be the case, they would think you were insane, right? So what does that say? It tells us that we feel nourished by doing hard things, that they're, that we are extracting value from those experiences that we don't get in the mundanity of our everyday lives. And yes, we have to consciously extract ourselves from the comforts of our environments and put ourselves in those positions. But the good news is there's lots of those things right now. It's insane how many marathons, the London Marathon was the other way, like how many thousands of people ran it. And then there's a Spartan race. And there's just a million of these things now that didn't used to exist because the human spirit needs it, it demands it. And we have too long deprived ourselves of these types of scenarios. That doesn't mean that you wanna be unsafe or put yourself in peril, but, um, I just don't see any other way or any other path towards becoming the better version of yourself without placing yourself in scenarios in which you're tested because succeed or fail, you have an experience that's gonna teach you more about who you are, what your limitations are and what your capabilities are. The popularity of these um, endurance races and even things like ice, plunge pools and stuff sure. the, all of these yeah. things that make us feel really uncomfortable again it reminded me of what i said earlier about the 
um, because the, there's been a real rise in sort of social media and the dig- digital screens and all of these things. Now people are looking for places for community. So bowling alleys and in real life events have increased. And in the same way, because we've optimized our lives to be more comfortable and easy. Now there's a, a booming industry around things that make us uh, feel uncomfortable. You said, I didn't get into ultra endurance sports to win races, beat others or stand atop a podium. I got into it because it's the perfect template for self-discovery. Mm. What did you discover about yourself? And also, I think it's probably important to, to say to people, you're really, really good at this ultra endurance stuff. Like we haven't quite gone through your CV yet, but I mean, I've got a list of accolades that you've achieved and you're, you're one of the, the best at this. So I think that's worth saying before we proceed. Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, I th- I've, I've learned so much. The amazing thing about endurance athletics is you have to spend a lot of time with an elevated heart rate that's not so uncomfortable that you can't perpetuate it for hours and hours and hours, but is just uncomfortable enough where you're sitting in that discomfort and you have to develop a a tolerance for that. So what it does is it teaches you how to suffer, how to manage pain, um, but also how to be with yourself. Like when I was training for these races, I would go out like all day alone and it's just you your breath and your mind. And at that time, I really was trying to figure out like, I can't be this lawyer anymore. Like, what am I gonna do? Like, all I know is I really like doing this. This is not a career path. (laughs) This is not, I'm not gonna support four kids doing this thing that I love. But it is bringing so much value to me that I just know I wanna keep doing it. And I'm going to pay attention and pull whatever threads show up. And what I learned through this journey of training, most importantly, the training, the races are just, you know, a demonstration of what you put into getting to that point, um, was on a surface level, as an athlete, I had a lot more to say uh, than than I ever believed that I could. I was able to do things I never would have thought possible um, and do it in my 40s, which is an age where people think you're way past your prime. Uh, so that was huge. And like I said earlier, that opened up the possibility of tapping into potential in other areas of my life. Um, but I also learned that when you cultivate and nourish that thing that is bringing you joy and you pay attention to the subtle voices that are telling you this feels right, when you commit to that completely, that will set you on a journey that will lead you to a place you can't possibly imagine. When I put on the running shoes for the first time and just thought, I love doing this, could I have imagined that I'd be sitting across from you right now having a conversation? It's ridiculous, it's preposterous. So what I learned was the power of connecting with the heart as somebody like yourself who lives in their mind and prides themselves on their intellect and their analytic abilities, understanding the limitations of that and finding a way to really pay attention to those kind of more ephemeral, ethereal uh, messages that one will receive when you're really quiet, you're really honest with yourself, 
and you're committed to taking actions that are in alignment with that in a way that maybe you never prioritized before. And that has been a path that I've blazed for many years at this point that has caused suffering and hardship, but also beautiful um, creative offerings and you know a life that I could have never imagined for myself. Metaphorically, it sounds like you, you almost ran away from your career in law. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Uh, you know, the law and me, like, how did that? I don't like conflict. Away? I don't know how I became a lawyer in the first place. Like, I just, you know, I, I, I could will myself to be be the lawyer that I was, but it never felt right to me, and I knew that I wasn't in the right situation for myself. And it took me a really long time to walk away. Like, I, I probably walked away from it over a very extended period of time. It wasn't a very dramatic split. I was trying to figure out from the point of when you start doing the ultra endurance racing to the point where you get into sort of financial hardship, 45 years old, you launch your Rich Roll podcast. You've got this law job, you start ultra racing, there's financial hardship. Is that because you you quit the law job, or is that no, because so, yeah. <laughs> Cause I was a bad lawyer? Oh, okay. Uh, no, no. no. Here, what happened was, so I, I I did exit like the big law firm thing, right. but I continued to practice law as a solo practitioner, and then in a couple different um, incarnations of partnerships with uh. a couple people. But as I got more and more immersed in the ultra world, my enthusiasm and interest in my law practice uh. continued to dwindle. And I was my own boss at that point, practicing um, law. So not a lot of new clients coming in. Right. Um, I was still doing it, making just enough money to get by, but wasn't doing great because I just wasn't into it. But I held on to it for a very long time. And when you're holding on to it, it's hard to get into the new thing until you're really willing to let go of the other thing. But making that transition was very challenging. Even you know after Finding Ultra came out, uh, I. I completely severed my ties with the law at that point, but there were, the phone wasn't really ringing that much and there wasn't a lot of opportunities coming my way and it took a lot of patience and faith. And I did the podcast for years before we were able to monetize it or do any kind of ads or anything like that. I just did it as like a fun hobby or project. What was it like for Julie during that period between sort of 2008 and 2015? Things are really tough financially. Um, you almost lost your house, couldn't pay a lot of your bills, had your cars repossessed. Yeah, it was very difficult. Um, she was really the strength in that equation because there were multiple occasions where I couldn't take it anymore. And I thought, this is ridiculous. I need to go back and get a law job. What kind of head of household or you know, man of the house am I if I can't even pay the bills and I'm chasing this fool's errand in this direction of trying to do these creative projects or be this athlete, like who who the hell do you think you are? And Julie was the one who was like, no, we've come too far for you to move backwards. And the answers that you are seeking and the solutions to the problems we face are only going to be found by continuing to blaze the path that you've established for yourself. And she had a conviction and a belief and an ability to see the more kind of developed, actualized version of myself that I couldn't at that time. And without her strength, her faith, her conviction, 
I definitely would have abandoned the path. But she was in all the way. And she would say, these things are just things. You're definitely on a path um, that you should be on. I can, I can see that and I want that for you. And if we lose the house, we lose the house. Cars are cars. This stuff comes and goes, but we're together and we're, we're going we're gonna to walk this path. This is what we're here to do, which is a fucking amazing thing for a partner to say to you, to have that kind of belief in you is such a gift. So I just can't emphasize enough how powerful um, she has been like in this whole thing. Of all the things you've accomplished in your life, of all the things you've done, what does she mean to you? I mean, she's, she is my, you know, partner in all things. She's my North star. She's my spiritual counsel. Um, she's my mirror. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're normal people with kids who, you know, bicker and argue and have the same kind of issues everyone else does. Um, but she's a really special person, really special. It's really, it's really something when someone can see the potential in you in a way that maybe you can't see it at that moment in time, or maybe you don't quite believe it. It is such a gift. You know, they say um, the greatest gift you can give somebody is your attention. Mm -hmm. But if you have somebody in your life who believes in you so thoroughly that they can see past whatever situation you're in or whatever faults you have or things that trip you up and holds a vision for that better version of you, and not only holds it for you, says, I believe in you. They're not telling you what to do or how to do it. They're saying, I believe in you and I trust you to find your way towards that person. And I am holding that for you in my daily consciousness, in my sleep, in my thoughts, in my prayers. They're manifesting it's a very it for powerful you. energy, yeah. So it's a curious idea that someone else can manifest <laughs> your life for you in a, in a kind of in an inadvertent way. I've experienced mm. that as well. There's been moments in my life where my partner has said something to me. I've heard what she said. I didn't believe it necessarily myself, but because she believed it, that I could do that. M maybe it did change a, a, a something in me. Maybe it did make me go, I trust her and she's smart and mm. she's usually right. And she's telling me that I can do this thing. So maybe it is possible. Mm. I can remember so many conversations over 15 years where someone said something to me about what my future will look like. And because I trusted them, um, I think it helped that future become a reality. Sure. I mean, just imagine the young person who uh, you know has the opportunity to be with a certain teacher and that teacher says, you know, you can do this. Like, you're good at it. The, like, there's countless stories of people who win Oscars and get up and thank their whoever who said, you know, you should keep doing that thing. And, you know, those are those are really powerful, um, you know, gifts that we can give to other people. He believes that if you follow your true path, the universe will support you. Quote I read about you as well. Yeah, I do. I do believe that. Um, that's been my life experience. I've seen that 
manifest in, in many people um, that I know over the years, a lot of people in recovery. Uh, and that doesn't mean that it's easy or convenient or on your timetable. Um, I, I would say that the, the path that I've pursued has been the hardest path I could have imagined. It's the most meaningful and fulfilling, um, but it didn't happen overnight. It happened over the course of more than a decade. Uh, and it required a lot of conviction and faith and patience and pain. Um, we have to, we, you know, we had to lose a lot, but there's that adage like you can't, you know, the, you can't be a phoenix if you don't burn in the flames first, right? And I feel like we had to burn in the flames or burn off, you know, the residue of whatever in order to be reborn to do something different. And I think when you have run that type of gauntlet and you emerge on the other side of it, what you have to share with other people is all the more kind of poignant because it's your own lived experience and it's authentic and real. So many chapters in your life, Rich. So many of them. We've been through pretty much all of them so far and we arrive now at today. Now, if I was to ask Julie what the next chapter looks like or, or you, I know, you know, it's funny because when people ask me this, I, my, my instinctive answer is I don't know, but I'm going to you know do my best at what I'm doing now. But if you were to try and if you think back to your mission, the mission you described at the start of this conversation, what do you think the next chapter is for you? That's a great question. I think for me, the challenge and the opportunity comes from learning how to let go of striving and step into a place of allowing rather than being this animal of self-will who's pursuing and achieving and pushing and um and 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 really kind of in their ambition to manifest something for financial security for legacy whatever it is to ease off that gas pedal and just be in a place of ease with everything where it doesn't have to be hard. And what would it feel like if you if you didn't push, but you still did the thing? Would you still be you? Would you feel like you left something on the table because you didn't suffer to create the thing that you share with the world? And I think that is so hard for me. And I imagine might be a difficult thing for you to digest for yourself, right? Because we both know if I go out and I push really hard, I can do something and I can make it great. And, I, and, and I'm pretty sure what the result of that is gonna be. But what if you created out of a sense of joy and you didn't have to exhaust yourself in doing it and you could enjoy your friends and your family and live a rich life without the stress that you place upon yourself or the pressure or the people pleasing or the need for any kind of external validation. So that's the mountain that I'm trying to climb right now. And I would say that I'm not doing it very well. Why do you want to um, climb that mountain though? That's the because question. I think that there's a lot of, of wisdom um, in being more in flow as opposed to willfulness and I think that um, 
there's a peace and a happiness to be found there that I'm probably missing in my life right now. Uh, and because it's new territory to be explored. I know what it's like to do this other thing and it's exhausting and it's not sustainable. And I believe that there is a better way over here. So am I in enough pain with this where I'm willing to entertain the possibility of trying something different or am I holding on too hard to this old modality and unwilling to embrace the possibility that the result and the, the, the fullness of life could be better by this different way of approaching things. Has there been personal symptoms that have encouraged you to seek out another way of being? Sure, yeah. Uh, I have tiptoed up to burn out a couple times with the podcast and that's been ameliorated by now having a staff of really talented people to help me because I was a control freak perfectionist who tried to do everything myself for too long to the point of it just being completely unsustainable um, to now having people that I empower to do a lot of the work that I used to do and who now do it very well, which has freed up my time. And I still find myself with this sense that success has to be earned and the only way to earn it is to inflict pain on yourself. And if you're not in pain, you didn't try hard enough and it would have been better if you suffered more. And I think that's a lie. And I wanna find out if it's a lie or if it's true. Thinking back to your endurance racing, it seems to be that it might be true. You know, you achieve that through pain. Sure. Dif discomfort seems to be the, the first hurdle to all the good places we but want to But actually, go. that's very comfortable for me. The okay. real discomfort is to see what it would be like without the suffering. That's harder to do. Yeah. It's harder to do for me and you. <laughs> I, I often ask my guests, are you driven or are you, dra are you being dragged? Because saying you're driven is a nice way to frame yourself. That's mm -hmm. like an intentional person. But so often we're actually being dragged by the insecurity, the shame, that desire to be enough. We're like, we're strapped to the end of the lorry and it's flying down the highway. We think we're in the driving seat, mm -hmm. you know? And I think in so many facets of my life right now, I know I'm, well, I suspect I'm being dragged, but I think I'm being driven and I'm portraying- an So what would, what would an example of that be? Even the podcast, you know, do I, do I have to be so like neurotic and obsessed with everything and every detail? You said it before we started, mm -hmm. you're very obsessed about the detail. The fact that when we do the podcast in LA, we have every book is the same in the same order. You know, that's insane. <laughs> I mean, it's a great story. It's very entertaining, yeah. but it's fucking bananas, yeah. dude. But for me, it's, I mean, I'm probably going to try and justify it here. But for me, it's about, I know that the small stuff is the stuff that most people don't think about. So it's my place. It's where we find the opportunity. But generally, of course, I think about all the things I do, all the businesses, all the details to the point of some level of suffering. There's definitely a, a cost to my personal relationships when at Sunday, when I'm on a date with my partner and I get a message and something's not quite right 
And then I lose 30 minutes in despair, like silent despair to myself in my head. I just kind of, I leave the, the dinner table. That's not a great way to live. Right. I relate to that deeply. <laughs> um, so I'm right with you in lockstep with that. Um, but what if you were to say, okay. But then, okay. okay, so let me try and justify Then everything, the whole house of cards caves on top of itself and all the good things in your life disappear. Yeah, that's what I think. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. And I'll say, well, all our ancestors, they built these skyscrapers and this AI stuff and these cameras that we're using. So we're innately meant to struggle forward. That's hardwired into us. It's why I'm here. My, my ancestors struggled forward. They built buildings and civilizations and they left that in my genetic code as a little message saying, you too shall struggle forward, Stephen. Mm -hmm. You too shall be wired to climb upwards. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that uh, to enjoy your life is an indulgence that's fine for other people, but you're on a mission, so you can uh you can like have a different relationship with <laughs> those aspects of life that other people find important i think so yeah 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 is that do you think i'm bullshit no i'm like i'm <laughs> just i'm just seeing if you see the world the way that i do yeah. <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. but uh what are you 30 how old are you i just turned 30 yeah, yeah so i'm 56 dude yeah. you know so check in with me and in, in in what advice you did know, you give me We've got the same mindset. Look, I think it's great that I'm all about the details. And I just want to say for the record, I shared it with your team earlier. I think that what you have built here is extraordinary. Um, I have so much respect for uh, not only the show, the way you comport yourself, uh, the way that you are curious about the people that you talk to, um, and the fact that you've built this incredible uh, audience in such a short period of time and the integrity and the, you know, the, 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 the quality is, is fantastic, you know, so I've been a fan. Um, and a lot of that is because you are attuned to the details and I see that in you. And I think there's something beautiful and wonderful about that. The trick is to not allow it to become toxic to the point where it starts to denigrate the quality of your life. So can you, you know, toggle it such that you're still pursuing what's important to you in a way that's sustainable because you want to be doing this for a long period of time, right? So after five or six years or 10 years, like what is your relationship to this thing going to be? Mm -hmm. And if it's not sustainable now where you feel drained mm -hmm. at the end of the week rather than energized, then maybe you look, you're a brilliant business person. Look at the model and figure out how you can um, tweak it so that you can stay in love with the process. And I think for me, uh, it's all about enjoying it for what it is and detaching from all the externalities. Like if I start looking on Spotify or Apple, where the ranking, all that kind of stuff, like I know that I'm in a dark place, right? I shouldn't be comparing myself to other people. I should just be present for the experience of having these conversations and trying to deliver value to the people who are taking time out of their day to listen. And that's it. It doesn't have to be any more than that. When I get caught up in that other stuff is when I uh, start to make decisions that begin to become out of alignment with the mission. Thank you. 
thank you, you for that advice yeah. um and thank you for such a, a rich wonderful conversation um i think especially that that closing piece of advice is something that will resonate with everybody and i've thought a lot actually starting out my career as an insecure young man that wanted to make millions and thinking that life was this kind of sprint where you can sacrifice everything else can wait including relationships social you know relationships romantic relationships family will i get this thing getting the thing and realizing that the kind of the thing just moves forward off into the distance like a mirage um, and then I've read Simon's book about infinite games and thinking, okay, how would I design every system in my life so that I could run those systems for 40 or 50 years in a sustainable way? And this is one of them. This is one of the ones, this is one of the systems, this podcast is one of the ones where I need to continue to remind myself that I need to design it in a way that is sustainable for 40 years of my life, including the period where I have seven kids mm-hmm. and, a, and a mortgage and a, and a wife that needs me to be there and and also not just for me but for all the people that work here as well um and everyone can relate to that especially people that are being dragged sure in some way beautiful we have a closing tradition on this podcast where the last guest leaves a question for the next guest not knowing who they are leaving the question for you get a 60 second phone call with a previous version of yourself. What do you say? You then get to pass the phone to someone who is in your life at that moment and you get 60 seconds to speak to them too. What do you say? What do you say? Hmm. I think I would call up the 18 year old version of myself and tell him that it's okay to be who you are, that you don't have to live up to anybody's expectations, that you don't need to earn love. And the best gift that you could give to yourself would be to find out what you love to discover the animating force within you and above all to nurture that, to mute out all the noise of the external world, the social and familial pressures, and to just find a way to be comfortable with who you are because who you are is 100% fine and you don't need to be anyone else in order to be accepted or loved. And the corollary of that would be to not get caught up in trying to make decisions about the rest of your life or your career path at such a young age, but to instead explore and invest in as many experiences as you possibly can to live lean and to be adventurous. And then I would say, put your mother on the phone And I would tell her, I know you love your son, but you got to leave him alone and let him be him. Why would you say that? How many hours do you have? (laughs) (laughs) I understand. (laughs) Rich, thank you so much for uh, an incredibly... very life-changing conversation in many ways but for your honesty and your vulnerability and for all the work you do because it's people like you that 
pave the way for what I do here. And we're big fans of yours. Mm. I mean, that's why I reached out to you and wanted to have you on the show. So I'm so privileged and honored that you said yes. Um, I freaked out a little bit when you responded because I've spent a lot of time watching a lot of your episodes. I I love um, the way you do what you do, the integrity in which you do it shines through. And everything you've said to me t- today about authenticity and being more aligned with yourself now makes perfect sense. Mm. It makes sense as to why what I've seen from your content and the way you've lived um, and the man that I've met today, I see the alignment. So thank you for the inspiration and thank you for the kindness and generosity today. I really appreciate that, Stephen. That means a lot. I have crazy respect for your mission and what you guys are doing here. And I've loved watching your trajectory and it was a real honor to come and talk to you today. And man, you're good. You're oh, really good so at this, man. You're like, I was like, wow, <laughs> what did we talk about? <laughs> uh,